Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18, is where we're going to be tonight. If you have one, I encourage you to go ahead and open up your Mark journal. Uh, there are additional pages for you to look at or be able to sort of dive into. Uh, I would encourage you to go to page uh, 29. That's an extra page for this week, and it may be an extra spot for you to be able to jot down some notes for this evening's text. I want to begin tonight with a question. And here's the question. Are you ready? Three words, one big question. The three words are who needs heaven. Who needs heaven? How many of you, just by way of hands, how many of you have ever heard that phrase, I don't want to be so heavenly minded that I'm no earthly good. Have you ever heard anyone say that phrase or one similar to it? We have three, four people who, really? What church did you guys grow? Okay, I heard this all the time. Don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Now the idea behind that one, let me just sort of explain it to you since evidently it's maybe a new idea. What it basically meant was simply this, that there, it was a, it was a, well, it was a, sort of a derogatory comment. It was saying that there are some people who are so focused on what comes next, they're not focused on what's happening now. And so the idea is that if you are so focused on heaven or the afterlife or what is to come, you're just not going to care about what's happening here. You're, gonna, you're going to disregard people. You're going to you know, not take care of the environment. You're not going to share. You're not going to all this stuff. And in fact, this is one of the narratives or one of the beliefs that is growing more and more in our very secular, rationalistic culture. The one that says that if you do not believe that there's something after this life, if this is all there is, that will by its nature force you to want to do good today because there's nothing to wait for tomorrow. Now, here's what's going to be interesting. As we look at this passage, this may seem like a very new Proposition and a very new challenge. In fact, if you have not already run into this, I just want you to know, congratulations, it's coming to Chattanooga. The younger generations are right now wrestling with, is there something after this world? And if there is, what does it really matter to this life? The good news is, church, that Jesus Christ was effectively asked this question by a group of rationalists and the answer he gave, I believe, gives us clarity for moving forward and grace to live life well today. And so I want to show you what happens. This is in Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. And here's the setup. Jesus is going through one of the busiest days of his life. We are still, believe it or not, we are still on what is known as Busy Tuesday. That was the Tuesday during the week called Holy Week or Passion Week, the week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, burial, resurrection. And on Tuesday, according to Mark's accounting of things, a lot happens. Jesus is being peppered with questions. And we'll get into that in a moment. But he's about to be asked the third question from this day. It's not the final question. 
But it's the third, what I would call insincere or gotcha questions. By the way, have you ever heard of a gotcha question? Here's a gotcha question. Sir, have you quit beating your wife? What do you say? No, I have not quit beating my wife. If you say no, they go, what, did you beat your wife? If you say yes, they say, what, you beat your wife before? I mean, it's a gotcha question, no good answer. Jesus has been asked two previous gotcha questions, and he's about to be asked a third gotcha question. And here's the question. Are you ready? Look at what it says. Then the Sadducees, we'll come back to them, who say there is no resurrection, came to Jesus with a question. <coughs> Teacher. You can always hear the, the lack of sincerity, but the syrupiness of it. Teacher. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now, let's say there were seven brothers. Not seven brides for seven brothers, but just seven brothers for those of you who are useful fans. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died leaving no children. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died at the resurrection. Whose wife will she be since the seven were married to her? All right, so here's the gotcha question. Jesus... According to this Leverite law, this Old Testament law from the book of Deuteronomy, apparently, Jesus, we're supposed to provide children for our, our, deceased, wife, our deceased brother's wife. So, so according to Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, if a man marries a woman, he is supposed to provide. One of the ways he provides is by having children. But what happens if he does not have any children? He dies. His name cannot be continued, and she does not have heirs, children, who can take care of her in her old age. So according to this Leverite law, the brother was required to marry the widowed wife and have children on behalf of his brother. But Jesus, this guy dies too, and so then the next of the seven brothers, he marries, he dies. Next in the line, he marries, he dies. He marries, he dies. He marries, he dies. Whose wife will she be when they all get to heaven? What is the answer? Now here's what's going on. The Sadducees, we're told, did not believe a few things that are kind of important. One of those that we're told here is they did not believe in the resurrection. Now, they were very different from some of the other Jewish leadership groups of the day. Let me make a little side note here. One of the things you need to pay attention to in your scriptures is the order of things. And sometimes understanding groupings will help you get the emphasis of what's going on. So we're told that Jesus' day, the debates that he encountered, began with a group of religious leaders, teachers of the law. Scribes coming to him. This is Mark chapter 11. And they ask him, Jesus, by what authority are you doing all the things you're doing? And specifically, this is immediately after, or the day after, he had just cleared the temple. And they want to know, who gave you the right to mess up our income stream? By the way, if you follow Jesus, 
he may mess up a few things in your life that you think need to be a certain way. So they come to him, the first group, the, the scribes. The second group comes when Jesus gives a great answer and then a real stinging parable. The second group comes. This is the Pharisees. You remember we talked about them on Sunday. Pharisees, that word means the separate ones. They come with a group called the Herodians. These were those who partnered with Rome. So you've got those who hate Rome and those who love Rome and they're working together because they hate Jesus so much. And they haven't got your question, Jesus. Should we pay taxes? And then you have this third group that seemingly just shows up out of the blue and says, well, we got a question too. But here's what you need to know. These were not incidental questions. This was a coordinated attack on Jesus. All three of these groups, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees were part of the ruling Jewish council called the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin had 70 Jewish men from these different groups, and they were, think of them as sort of the social, religious, supreme court of the Jewish culture. And so it's no surprise, it's really no, no you know, happenstance, that one group after the other, after the other, come to attack Jesus. This was a coordinated attack to get rid of Jesus. So the Sadducees come, but they're a different group from all the others, because they have some different beliefs. In fact, let me just give you a few of these. The Sadducees, by the way, I gave you a song a few weeks back about I don't want to be a Sadducee. I'm not going to sing any more for you because the comments I got after that were just downright ugly. I'll, I'll have you know that the tile in my shower think I sing amazingly well. And so, but the Sadducees, the Sadducees, this name, by the way, means righteous ones. They began about two centuries before the birth of Jesus. They were a group that claimed to be the descendants of a high priest named Zadok, Z-A-D-O-K. He was a high priest during the time of King David. And so they called themselves and believed themselves to be in his lineage. Now, one of the interesting things is to be a high priest meant that you were part of the Levite tribe, the priestly tribe. So the Sadducees, to be from Zadok, would mean that they were priests. They had responsibility with the temple. This is going to play an important part in just a few minutes, so remember that. But they had some different beliefs from uh, the Pharisees, for instance. So, for instance, the Pharisees believed that there were angels and there were demons, that there were spirits. But the Sadducees believed that there were no spirits, no angels, no demons. The Sadducees also did not believe in miracles. No supernatural events. By the way, the Sadducees, as a result, and the reason they didn't believe in miracles is because they believed that God was not active in their world. Rather, it was human free will that determined the course of human history. In addition to that, the Sadducees did not believe that there was an afterlife. The scriptures say this, no heaven, no hell, no reward, no judgment. When you die physically, you die spiritually as well. This was what they believed. And the reason for most of these beliefs was because the Pharisees 
accepted the entire Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. They accepted all of those books as inspired by God. But the Sadducees only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. The first books uh, called uh, the Torah or the Pentateuch. The book, five books of Moses. And so, as a result, since they only believed in the first five... They didn't see evidence of miracles, spirits. They discounted some of the supernatural activities of God in those first five. And they really saw God not as involved except for perhaps in a metaphorical sense. And so because of this, they had a very limited view of God's interaction, of what happens after we die. And it happened to be in great part because they did not accept Scripture in its entirety. By the way, isn't it interesting that our view of Scripture influences our view, period. This is why whenever there's a discussion or a disagreement when it comes to what is truth, discounting Scripture is always a part of that conversation. It has to be, because if we hold Scripture to be true, if we hold that it is accurate, then we must adjust our thinking and behavior. But if we can discount certain views from Scripture or different passages, we're then free to believe Different things. And so the Sadducees, they did not believe in the resurrection, so they come to Jesus and they have this gotcha question. Jesus, we don't believe there's a resurrection, but let's just talk about it. And they asked him this question that they thought, they thought it was a gotcha question because they saw that the resurrection created real logic problems in their mind. After all, who's going to be married to us? Now, they think that's the big problem of their story. Who's going to be married to this woman? I've got to tell you, that ain't the problem I see in this story. This is one of the funniest stories, I think, in all of the New Testament. Because they're coming to Jesus, and their concern is, well, hey, who's going to be married to her when they all get to heaven? And my concern is, why have they not opened an investigation into this woman? I mean, someone's got to get in the kitchen and smell the meatloaf or something. He got seven brothers, and each one of them dropping like flies. After a while, someone has to say, "What's the insurance on each of these fellows?" Right? Well, yeah, exactly. By the way, if you ever want to ask, does Scripture have a black widow in it? Yes, it does, right here. Okay. So they want to know, but what's the deal, Jesus? Come on, help us out. In fact, this was the question that they would use to taunt the Pharisees, because the Pharisees didn't agree. That there was no after life. They thought there was. And so the Sadducees would say, well, guys, let's talk about this. And they'd laugh at them. After all, what do you do with this question? I want you to notice a couple things. I want you to see how Jesus responds. Because the way Jesus responds is the way Jesus' disciples respond as well. Notice what he says here. Verse 24. Jesus replied, are you not in error... Why? Because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God. Now, here's what's so interesting. Before we even read the next part of this, notice that Jesus, when he answers those with whom he disagrees, he does so from the basis and the knowledge of the scriptures. 
In fact, you read through the four Gospels and almost every time when Jesus encounters a test or a difficult situation, he almost always responds by quoting Scripture. Now, if a disciple, a Christian, is one who follows Jesus, who goes where Jesus goes, does what Jesus does, says what Jesus says, then if Jesus uses Scripture to answer the tests, the criticisms, and challenges, then hint, hint, how should we respond when tested, challenged, or confronted with things? If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for who? All of us. Hey, good. Thank you. That was a good... By the way, that was almost Pentecostal. I appreciate that. Thank you. That was a good... Us! I think you're okay. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. So, first thing. You need to know the Scriptures. I need to know the Scriptures better. Um, family, do you recall... Some years ago, we were often called or known as uh, people of the book. Did you ever hear that phrase? Oh, good. We got one. Okay. We need to be known for this. And not for the purpose of beating other people up. The scriptures are not a hammer. They are a surgical tool to cut out the cancer. You and I need to know scripture. We need to memorize it. We need to know it. And it, we need to sort of bleed scripture. So when there is something that comes at us, the first response is almost like a Rolodex. Okay, anyone of you remember Rolodexes? Okay, thank you. You just kind of... And that scripture comes to mind, you go, that's how I respond to this. That can only happen if you've been in the Word of God. It, think of it like this. My wife, she's in here. My wife is a fantastic cook. She makes some of the best meals. And some of my favorite meals that she makes are things that have to marinate for a while. If it went in a crock pot, it's going to be good. Um, or, or, or if she does um, oh, spaghetti. I think spaghetti is better... Um, the second or third day because it has had time to really marinate. Anyone else? Yeah. All right. All right. Listen, listen, listen. I want you to think of yourself as the one being marinated, being immersed, submerged. You are sat in the juices of Scripture for so long that you cannot help but be filled with the flavor of God when things happen. And so what comes out of you is that taste, that, that fragrance, that, that flavor. Know the scriptures. Be like our Savior Jesus. So he responds with scripture. Now the interesting thing, notice what scripture he chooses. Look here. I want to skip down, and we'll come back to verse 25 in, uh, in just a moment here. But I want to do 26. Now, about the dead rising. Have you not read in the, what are those next three words? Book of who? Moses. Now wait a minute. Which books do they accept as authoritative? The books of Moses. Church, when someone is presenting to you an argument why they do not believe, or, or when they have an objection, we do not do them any favors by appealing to an authority that they do not accept. You begin by going to the authorities they already accept. See, part of the wisdom of following Christ is He will help you see things in the culture around you 
where you'll be able to say, okay, this person does not believe what I believe, but they agree with this point here. That point agrees with what I believe, so I'll start with what they already agree with. This is called wisdom evangelism, that you appeal to things that people already agree with. To then draw them to faith, to show them the truth. So Jesus doesn't go to uh, the books of history in the Old Testament, or the prophets, or the wisdom literature. He goes to the passages that they say are from God, and he quotes that. And he says this, Have you not read in the books of Moses, in the account of the bush? By the way, what famous bush do you think he is referring to? Yeah, the burning bush. In the account of the burning bush, God talking to Moses, how God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Now I know for us, maybe we listen to that and go, okay, how does that answer the question? Here's what's happening. He goes to the passages that they believe were true. And he says, have you not read your own scriptures, the ones that you agree with? Do you notice that our God, he says, I am the God, not I was the God. Of these three men who at the time of Exodus 3, at the time when God came to Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were physically dead. And yet God, when speaking to Moses, does not say, Moses, I was the God of these men who have since physically died. But he said to Moses, I am the God of these men. He could not be the God who is over someone Unless that person is still and will always have an eternal soul. You follow what's happening here? Our Jesus knows the scriptures so well that he is able to show people what they should have already seen. And he does so by looking at something as minute as the tense of a sentence. You and I need to know the scriptures. And I do not pretend to know anywhere near as much as I want to, but I need you to know something. One of the coolest jobs, I have the best job in the world. I'm sure you have a great one as well. I've got the best one, okay? And here's why. I get to spend time with you. I get to spend time with people who don't know Jesus. And I get to tell them what I'm learning from scripture. That's it. Now, there's a lot of garbage that goes into that as well. I get it. But I get to study the Word of God, and I get to be with you. I get to study the Word of God, and I get to show it to my friends who don't know Jesus, who don't want anything to do with Jesus, and I get to just show it to them anyway and say, God will sort it all out. There it is. But here's what you need to know. We need to be in the Word of God to know the truth and to see the specifics of how what it says applies to people's lives today. And so he gives us, and he uses just even the tense. That's the brilliance of not only our Jesus, but of the texts that we have to be given. So Jesus, using the very tense of the phrase, is able to correct their understanding from the source that they agree with. Now you say, what does all this have to do with heaven? Why does this matter? You said, who needs it? Come on, Josh, that's a teaser. What's the, what's the punchline to this whole lesson? Interesting, but irrelevant, right? All right, let's talk practical here for a minute here. There's that one little verse that we skipped, verse 25. Let's look back at it for a moment. Because this is the verse that when we read this section, most of us zero in on this verse. 
And if you're like many people I've talked to, this is the verse that creates a lot of spiritual indigestion. Makes us upset. Look at what he says. Jesus speaking. We'll roll back to verse 24. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? For when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So the first thing I want us to notice is he says we will be like the angels in heaven. But he does not say that we become angels in heaven. Uh, did any of you have the, I mean, just the godly privilege of getting to grow up watching Looney Tune cartoons or have grandchildren who saw anyone in here? Okay. Um, almost always, when you have a heavenly scene in these old cartoons, the characters who have just died go to heaven. They're wearing white flowing robes. They have a halo. And what do they have attached to their backs? Wings. Jesus does not say that you get a pair of wings. Rather, Clarence, the angel from It's a Wonderful Life, told us that. Jesus says you will be like the angels, but you don't become an angel. Uh, you say, well, that's not what bothers me. What bothers me is this little point where Jesus says there's not going to be marriage in heaven. Now, by the way, there's been a lot of debate on this. Some people will say, well, uh, that's not what Jesus is really talking about. And, and, and Jesus has this, and there have been all sorts of creative answers. Here's, just being real frank with you, the most compelling argument to what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is simply saying what he seems to be saying here. Now, here's the challenge. And by the way, I know for some, not in this room, never in this room, but for some, the, the prospect of not being married in heaven and you're married on earth you're excited about that, okay? So that, that's no one in this room. I know it's not. All right. Because everyone in this room, if you're married, you're like, oh, dear Lord, please, let me just stay with her forever. Let me stay with her. Like okay. If you have even a moderately good relationship with your spouse, this passage may create some angst, but you go, wait, 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 wait. I, I love my spouse. I can't imagine eternity without that relationship. And here Jesus is saying... I ain't going to have it in heaven. What in the world? I, and I, again, my wife is my best friend. We lay in bed and we laugh about the silliest things. We get mad at each other more so than we can with any other person in the world. But then we make up. We love each other. She's my buddy. I cannot imagine life without Lindsay. And so when I read this passage, there are these little pitches in my soul. They go, oh my God. How good can heaven be if I'm not with her? And, you know, and of course she feels the same way about me. <laughs> I don't want her to be disappointed in heaven either. Actually, I'm scared she'll get better off for us. <laughs> so so let's, let's sort of dive in. Oh, actually, before we do that, put a pin in it. Let's kind of roll back to a different question. What does it even matter if there's heaven or not? I want you to notice something here. Those Sadducees we talked about a moment ago, because they did not believe there was anything after this life, do you know what one of their chief aims was in this life? Money. After all, if you are not going to get anything after this life, you've got to go for the gusto now, don't you? One time around, that's all you've got. Chips in, do what you have to for a good life 
now. You're in a committed relationship, but you don't really like it. Well, hey, if this is all there is, you better get out because your happiness is more important. You're in a situation where you've made an agreement with a business partner, but it's just not working out for you the way you want it. Well, you better do everything you can to break your promise because, after all, this is your one life to live. Would it surprise you to know that most of the men who were Sadducees were also a part of the upper echelons of the cultural status? They were, many of them, part of the, the aristocratic class. They were the, uh, the hoity-toity, the, the, the highfalutin ones. In fact, because they were Levites, these were the men who were responsible for the daily operations and the enterprise of the Temple, the buying and selling of animals. Wait, do you guys remember what Jesus did just the day before? Who do you think was most angry at Jesus for clearing the temple? After all, if this is all there is, don't you dare mess with what I've got and what I'm trying to get. Oh, you can call us the righteous ones. But it's amazing that if this is all there is, righteousness takes a back seat to pragmatism and deism. In fact, if there is no afterlife, let's just talk from over here, Bobby. If there is no afterlife, a few consequences. Number one, you got to get all you're going to get right here because there's nothing next, is there? Number two, if you want to jot this down, if there is no afterlife, uh, then there's truly no true justice. No justice. If there's no reward, no punishment, you just stop at the end, and it doesn't matter how many people you step on in this life, there is nothing after this life, no one after this life, no great judge who says, this was right, this was wrong, you were victimized, you will be punished. There's nothing. In fact, I don't know if you saw the news, but this past week, there was a news report about how DNA had finally helped solve an almost 50-year-old cold case. Did you see this? In 1972, there was a little girl, 11 years old. Her name was Carrie. On Thanksgiving Day, she decided to ride her bicycle down the beach. And she never came home. They found her body washed up next day, miles from where she had been last seen. And what had been done to her was horrific. They looked for the killer for years, and they kept trying, but they did not find him until they started to think about, okay, what about DNA? So in 2004, they put this DNA that they had collected in the DNA database, in the national one, but at the time it was so new there weren't enough matches to compare it against, they could not find this individual. And they recently, though, they said, well, you know what, let's, let's put it in the genealogical databases, some of these online ones that you can go on. And they found a match. They found the man who murdered her. His name was Jake Brown. But here's the only problem. Jake Brown died in Arizona in 2003. <coughs> never charged. Never punished. If there is no afterlife, 
then where is the justice for 11-year-old Terry? Do you see why this is important? If there is or is not. Let me tell you something else. If there is no afterlife, if there's nothing beyond this, since there would be no justice after this life, then it means that we will be compelled to bring justice for ourselves. Where is forgiveness if there's no justice? After all, if there's no justice after this, that means that you need to, you've got to take justice in your own hands. Turn the other cheek. Well, why do that? Forgive someone who's harmed you. Why would you do that? If there is nothing beyond this life, it's all about you. It's all about your justice, your time, your health, what you want. Let me give you just a couple more. If there is no afterlife, then there's really no relationship with God. If the Sadducees are correct, there was God, there is a God, but it's not involved in people's lives today. And if there is no afterlife, meaning you die, body and soul, from the moment you die, that means there is no life with God. He created you, but then he went fishing. It also means that if there's no afterlife, death is to be feared above all things, isn't it? That's the end of the ride. This is why it matters, family. This is why what Jesus says has incredible implications for us today. Now, with that in mind, let's go back to the point about marriage. You're saying, what does that have to do with anything? I'm impressed. Can we, uh, you know, pass the Kool-Aid? No, no, we're not doing that, Okay. We're not going to test the theory tonight, but here's what I want you to think about. So if there is an afterlife, if Jesus is right, he says, but, but in, this, in this life to come, there will be either giving or receiving in marriage. If you're like me, you go, how can that be if, if you're not married? And in that moment, here's what that reveals to, to me about myself, and maybe it reveals to you something about yourself. Here it is. It's that I don't have the foggiest picture of how great it's going to be if I think anything on earth is greater than that moment to be with him. My cousin David, he's a minister in Nashville. He has three sons and he told a story a number of years ago when his boys were much younger. He was going to take them back to where he grew up, which was Charleston, South Carolina. And his wife, Sydney, who's just a champ of a gal, she was not able to ride out with them, but she was going to meet them there. And so it was David's job, my cousin's job, to get his three sons from Nashville to Charleston, South Carolina, ideally in one piece. And the goal was, once they get there, they're going to go to the beach, they're going to have a ball, it's going to be great. Well, along the way, if you've ever been on a long car ride with a little kid with little, little bitty ladders, you know what you have to do. You have to stop at a bathroom, Right? Well, this was one of those moments, and there was no time to find like a really nice bathroom machine. I mean, this was going to be this was going to be like a truck stop's worst night, you know, a, tr a trucker's worst nightmare kind of place. But they come in, and he walks in, and the place you can see the germs—they're so big. And so he walks into the bathroom, and he tells his boys, "Don't touch anything." <laughs> and he said it was it was like playing whack-a-mole with kids because one is going over. He's like, "No, no, no, no!" He's pulling them back. He gets one to use the bathroom in the next, and as he's helping the last one wash their hands, he looks back over, and his youngest son is elbows deep in the urinal. I'm not trying to be crass here. 
And ladies, if you don't know what that is, talk to your husbands later. But the urinal, okay? And he's not just with his arm down there. He's playing with the, with the urinal puck. You know the little scented thing that you, it makes good smells? And, and David goes, oh no. I'm just going to have to leave him here. And he said the worst part was not what his son had done, but trying to explain to his boy that he's got to leave the urinal puck in the bathroom. His boy's like, no, daddy, I love it. He's like, no, son, you don't. And he tries to explain to his little boy how where they're going is going to be amazing. Like, son, we're going to go to the ocean. It's amazing. Well, this little boy never seen the ocean. So he tries to describe. He's like, well, it's 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 more water than you've ever seen. A lot more than what's in that little thing there. It's amazing. You need to come with me. It's going to be great. And you're going to swim. And there are these things called waves. And this little boy's like, oh, what is this? It's like splashing, but bigger. And he said, my little boy could not imagine what I had in store for him. And he, if I had allowed him, or if he had not trusted me, he would have given up a trip to the ocean simply to play with a scented puck in a urinal. Now, folks, please don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Your spouse is not a scented puck in a urinal, okay? But by comparison to what the Lord has prepared for those who love Him, the very best things of this world do not hold a candle. And the reality is, I am so focused, and maybe you are as well, but I'm so focused on what's happening here that I often do not consider what I'm going towards. And my problem is not that I'm so heavenly minded, that I'm of no earthly good. But my belief is that the most impactful, those who do the most good for eternity, are those who are most focused on eternity. Because if there is a God, and if there is life after this life, then I don't have to be the one who gets justice for every wrong thing that has happened to me. I can be a forgiving person, for I know that the good God who forgave me is able to figure it all out. If there is a heaven, if there's more than this life, then I know that I will be reunited with the one who created me, who loves me, who is right now sustaining me by His very Word. If there is a God, and if there is a heaven, then all of a sudden the things that I think are so shiny and beautiful, the hockey pucks of His life, He says, are you kidding? That's not even the stuff we make streets out of in my place. I think Christians need to engage their divine imaginations. So here's how I want us to end tonight. What must it be like that for it to be heaven, the greatest relationships on earth pale in comparison to the kinds of relationships that we'll have in heaven? What must it be like for the place that we're going to be so grand that Jesus says, oh, it's better than you can imagine. There's this word that we often use. It's the word nostalgia. The word nostalgia. 
And if I understand correctly, it comes from a couple of Greek words. It comes from the Greek word for homecoming. And the Greek word pain or ache. The word nostalgia literally means to long for or ache for a place that you've never really been to. How many of you, how many of you grew up going somewhere that was kind of special to you? Maybe it was a grandparent's house. Maybe it was a cabin in the woods. For me, it was my grandma's house in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, the memories I have there. It was the most cherished place. Every year we go for a few weeks, family. And, and I can remember as we would drive over at Xavier, the road that she lived on, we'd come over and there was her house. We'd turn into it and we almost always got there when the sun was going down. It just seemed more magical that way. And I remember my grandmother would be out in front. The house lit up, the light pouring out from the windows and she'd be there with her big grin waving at us. And we'd come in, and if other family had already arrived, they'd pour out from the house. And there were hugs, and there were tears, and there was joy, and there was laughter. And the kids, we'd run off and we'd play. And I remember after she passed away in 2004, I went back. And it's an amazing thing. It didn't look the way I remember it. It was still a nice house. It wasn't as big as I remember. It wasn't as bright as I remember it. It wasn't as magical. Do you know what I'm talking about? You try to recapture that memory, that moment, that energy, that something, and you go back and you have this sense, this ache, this longing that there's a place that you know you were made for. And I just want to go back and I just want to recreate those moments. I want to step back into time as a little boy and be with my cousins, be with my parents, be with my grandma, be with my grandfather before he passed away. I want to experience it. Maybe for you it's not a grandmother's house. Maybe it's, well, it's time, those earlier years as a parent with those little kids. Or maybe it's that season of life where you travel and you saw things you never thought you'd get to see or whatever it may be, then you get the opportunity to go back and it's okay, but you go, this is not what I remember. There's something more to it. The thing with nostalgia is that you are longing for something that you'll never be able to grab onto in this life. As a great philosophy, uh, philosopher once said, he said, that deep longing we all have for places on earth are simply the faint echo of the longing we have for a true home with God. What you're longing for, the thing that you just feel like you can't grab, that it's just somehow out of reach, is your soul saying that you were made to return to be with your Creator. And there's things that you just desperately wish you could hold on to on earth, but they just keep slipping from your fingers. Jesus is saying what you are wanting and longing for is so much greater, and that is a desire from your heart saying there's something more that you were designed to be with God forever. That is that longing that is stirring in you. 
So what will it look like, family, in the moment? And I just want you to think with me. What will it look like? What will it be like in that moment when Jesus, as Scripture says, I don't know, I don't know what we'll be doing in the moment, but what if he comes back before we see him face to face because of death? Imagine tomorrow. Can we just imagine for a moment? Tomorrow morning, you wake up. Getting ready for work, or maybe you're walking into a meeting, or you're making breakfast for your children, or you're calling that friend on the phone, or perhaps, like so many, you're just feeling those familiar aches and pains, and you feel the hurt and stiffness. Your leg pops, your jaw pops, your back pops, everything pops, something pops. And in that moment, right there, in that moment, I don't know what you're doing, but imagine that moment, all of a sudden you hear. It was clear, earth rumbling trumpet sound you've ever heard. And it is not blown by the lips of humans, but it is the sound of the angelic host trumpeting the arrival of our Savior. Imagine. What does it look like in your mind's eye as the sky itself, as the sun is rising, but the sky itself rips open and the light that streams in is so much brighter than the sun itself that the sun looks like a moon. And there in the center is the one for whom you are made. The one that your heart stirs for in those moments where you long for something more and you see the one who as he approaches his hands, the holes are there and he is coming for you. What will it be like? Here's the reality. Family, you were made for that home. And we need as a church to have an imagination, not one that's extra biblical, but one that says this is what it will be like and it's going to be amazing. And unless we have that in view, then the things of this earth, what is this? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Do you know the song? Look full in His wonderful face. And the next line, think about this. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and Yeah.